Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Today, we're, we're talking about China's relationship with the UK. And so we're live from Manchester, from Conservative Party Conference, for those of you listening at home. And I've got a brilliant panel. You all know Foreign Secretary James Cleverly joining us for the first half an hour. Then we'll have to let him go, but there will be some time for audience questions before we do that. Um, and then I'll bring in my esteemed panellists, Sophia Gaston, Head of Foreign Policy at the Think Tank Policy Exchange, and Sam Hogg, who is the editor of the very insightful Beijing to Britain newsletter. Um, so we'll also give you a chance to ask um, them some questions as well at the end. First things first, James, because I haven't plugged my podcast enough. <laughs> you've said that in the past that you've, you've, you're, you're a fan of Chinese whispers. Can I take it from that that you think it's quite important to understand China? Yeah, I, I, it is absolutely important to understand China and it's important to engage with China and it's really important that I, as the, uh, the Foreign Secretary of the UK and the other ministers in my department and indeed other ministers across government meet with Chinese ministers and Chinese officials um, because, you know, uh, pretending that China is not a significant player on the world stage is not a winning strategy. Uh, and one of the points I've tried to get across and sometimes, um, you know, uh, people don't, you know, some of my dear friends, I don't think kind of really hear me when I'm saying this is that engagement with another country is not, is not a prize for good behaviour. It's not some kind of gift or reward. It is work. It's the work that we do. It's the work that we have got to do. And it's the work that we will continue uh, to do. So uh, engaging and understanding, uh, I think, is incredibly important when it comes to foreign policy, yeah. Mm. And so just on that, in the updated integrated review from earlier this year, the government pledged to double funding for China capabilities across government. So do you know where that money is going at the moment? Or if it hasn't been delegated yet, what is on your wish list? Well, I mean, some of it is about uh, skills, making sure that we have uh, people that, that you know, speak uh, Mandarin, people that have a proper understanding of China in all its uh, complexities. Uh, some, so some of it is about headcount, some of it is having, uh, about having more people, uh, some of it is about having uh, more points of presence and better points of presence, so some of that will be money spent in China uh, in our network. We have a number of points of presence uh, around China, not just in Beijing. Um, and it won't just be, of course, within the, uh, within the FCDO. It will be in a number of areas across uh, government. So we are all going to have to bid for that extra money. I'd like to think that uh, because it is a, um, a pot of money focused on a, uh, another country, that I'd have a half-decent chance of getting at least a, a, a decent chunk of that money. But we're going to have to bid. It's going to be competitive, and I think that's good. And what's the timeline for that? Uh, well, I think some of that will be dictated by circumstances. One of the lessons that I took, having been a minister in the department, is very little in foreign affairs happens quickly. Uh, developing a cohort of people that have uh, really strong language skills is not an instant fix. Mm. So we are going to have to have a degree of patience uh, about this. And I've often said you can spend money quickly or you can spend money well. Um, and spending money both quickly and well is really quite tough, and I want to make sure that we spend it very well. Does that also include um, people that you've called your dear friends, people in the parliamentary party of the Conservatives, um, who may not understand China as much as they possibly should? Do, you know, is there going to be more uh, training for those, or do you think that they need to understand China more? Maybe they do. You do think that they understand China enough? Well, I'm not. I think it would be a bit arrogant of me to say they don't understand uh, China. I think they a, a number of a number of people. I mean, people that I describe as dear friends when I was uh, being invited to criticise people uh, who had been critical of me. I made the point that some of the uh, some some of the yeah, very passionate critics of the decisions that I've made about how we work with China are people who are sanctioned by the Chinese government mm. and therefore have legitimate reasons to be like, really very frustrated with the behaviour of the Chinese government. And I'm, I'm not going to criticise them 
for responding to being sanctioned uh, in that way. Now, I need to make the case, and I will continue to uh, do so. Uh, they have every right. We, you know, we live in a uh, in a in a democratic model where uh, we can have you know friendly but impassioned disagreement about policy issues. Um, and some of my you know, closest friends in politics disagree with me on, on, on some of the direction of travel that I've been taking. I will always listen to them. I will always try and address their concerns as far as uh, I can. I, I'm, I'm not going to start sticking the boot in. Um, but, um, but, yeah, I want to make sure that right across the system... Oh, please tell me I'm not the only one that can see that happening. That's not... That's a, sorry, guys, that's CCP-controlled. Right, OK. Um, so... Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, w- I want to make sure that we have a proper, clear-eyed and well-informed debate about how we work, uh, how we engage with, how we trade with, what we choose to do and what we choose not to do with China. Mm. Now, your trip to China earlier this year was one of those things that was a little bit controversial. Well, I'm going to pull you off on that. I- Foreign Secretary flies to foreign country to have meetings should not be controversial. I would agree with you on that, <laughs> and yet it was. So <laughs> yeah. why do you think that is? Well, because it's China, and as I say, uh, there have been a number of things that China has done, uh, both domestically, regionally, internationally, and directly to some of my parliamentary colleagues, which has, which has uh, angered a lot of people. I think there's some, you know, there's huge legitimacy mm. towards that anger, but it's my job... It is my job to have meetings like this, to have trips like this, to have those difficult conversations where we need to have difficult conversations face-to-face and be very, very clear-eyed about those conversations. Um, and uh, I think that... Uh, I, 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 sometimes, I sometimes fear that we, we, we've drifted towards a very binary uh, set of habits... And again, that's reflected. I keep being invited. You know, what what one word would you use to describe China? Mm. And I'm like, well, I don't do that to any other country in the world. I mean, no one invites me to say, give me one word to describe your uh, UK's relationship with France. I mean, I, it's just, and it's weird. You know, our relationship with China, just like our relationship with uh, every other country around the world, uh, is complicated. It's multifaceted. There are things that countries do that we agree with and seek to support. There are even uh, with our closest friends, there are things that they do that we might disagree with, and we raise those issues with them. So the idea of of giving this one word to descriptor to China, where we don't do it with any other country in the world, I think is uh, I think is um, I think is foolish. Mm. Now, you say that you raised some of these tough issues with China um, when you were there. I think some people are sceptical of how much the Chinese listen or care about you raising that kind of stuff. So in those tough conversations then, I mean, what, what do the Chinese say? Like, what does Foreign Minister Wang Yi say in response to that? How does he react? So this is, I think, again, I'm give your listeners a little bit of a, a kind of a, a, a peek behind the curtain on how these things work. Often, what people say in the room is not the most important thing to take note of. Mm. Uh, often, the things that they don't say, or how they say it, or uh, the tone of their response—it's that subtleties, which again, why face-to-face meetings are so very, very important. So, for example, uh, when you have a, a, a meeting, a bilateral meeting, uh, you'll have the two principals who do all the talking. And in the room, there may be you know, up to a dozen other people. Especially for the Chinese side. Yeah, <laughs> uh, who take copious notes and look very, very carefully. Um, and you know, what my officials are doing is, whilst I'm talking with uh, Foreign Minister uh, um, Wang Yi, for example, they will be watching how his officials respond to some of the things I say, what their body language says, what things they write Mm-hmm. frantically, which bits they ignore, which bits that they overlook, which bits does the foreign minister listen to carefully, how long he pauses before he answers, whether his answers are the kind of the pretty much pre-scripted responses to things, for example, when I raised the, uh, um, uh, the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims in uh, Xinjiang. Um, I know exactly what he's going to say because he's said it before. Mm. But does he drift off script slightly or does he stay religiously to the script? 
does he does he say it and say it and say it again, or does he kind of skip past it? These are the kind of things. So um, certain things I did really very much notice when um, uh, when we spoke. When I talked about uh, China's um, commercial relationship with the rest of the world and how many countries, including our own, including the UK, are taking measures to safeguard themselves. Mm -hmm. And that is having a, uh, um, a slowing effect on trade volumes. And the ma I made the point that, that whether it's the Philippines, who I visited just before going to Beijing, or the UK, or the US, or Australia, or others, we are all taking measures which are just nudging down our, our trade volumes with China. And the cumulative effect is having a real impact on China. And when I had that discussion, he listened very, very closely. His officials were looking very intently. When I had the conversation about uh, Prigozhin's uh, attempted coup in Russia and how cracks are appearing, and the longer this war goes on, the more likely there is of some unpredictable catastrophic event in Russia which would be bad news for the UK, bad news for Europe, but particularly bad news for a country like China, which has a land border, extensive land border with Russia. Again, listen very, very carefully when we discussed that. Now, his response was identical to responses I've had from him previously, except it wasn't. Mm. And it's that's th th those differences mean that, that, that these messages are landing and we do have influence. It's not instant and it might not even be massive. But we do have influence. And I get very frustrated with my colleagues basically saying, oh, the Chinese don't care what the British think. They really do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had a four-hour meeting with their foreign minister. But would you have liked that meeting to have been longer? I mean, it's a shame it was only one day. Well, um, there, uh, there are a couple of things. There are a couple of uh, points that I really needed to, to land. Um, and you know, the, negotiating the logistics of a, of, a, of a trip like this are always long and complicated. It's not just a matter of picking up the phone saying, are you available on this date? There's a whole <laughs> load of, you know, there's a whole load of things, particularly in the so Chinese system. Well, exactly, about, you know, about just simple things like, you know, um, your minister can come, but he has to travel in a Chinese government car. And I'm like, no, I will travel with the ambassador in, in, in our car. And all the, so there's loads of things like that. Um, and, uh, of course, the original timescale for the meeting was meant to be earlier in the summer, but my then opposite number mm -hmm. uh, became... Not so opposite. Not, yeah, well, he, he, first of all, he was unwell, uh, and then he was invisible, uh, and no one's seen him. I mean, no one's seen him since the summer, mm -hmm. so that kind of delayed things. And then we drifted into multilateral season. You've got UNGA, you've got NATO foreign ministers, G7 foreign ministers, so there was a bit of a window. Um, and so I, I, I would prefer to have a short trip than no trip. How much were you brought in on that delay when Ching Gang first started? Well, I think it was an EU meeting that he first cancelled on in July. Were the Chinese telling you that he was just ill for a little bit? Uh, yeah, so look, the public, the public explanation uh, echoed what we were hearing directly. Uh, which was, you know, they were still very, very much keen for the visit to happen, but unfortunately the foreign minister was temporarily unavailable and then that temporary became slightly less temporary and then, and then uh, he, uh, he had to stand down from his post uh, and then Wang Yi was uh, stepped back in as, as foreign minister. Um, so, you know, their public message was the message that we received, of course, you know, just like their public messaging, I think a lot of people like, that sounds unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sadly, well, sadly, it's interestingly, um, it's not the only time it's happened. Obviously, with the, uh, the defence minister also mm -hmm. taking ill, and then rocket force generals, the yeah. CEO of Evergrande this week. Yeah. James, a slightly different question here. You've been known to sing karaoke with um, diplomats after <laughs> these <laughs> some meetings. Uh, Anthony Blinken, I think you did a Beatles with. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Someone's very um, excited about Anthony Blinken doing so, Yeah, so uh, Tony, Tony Blinken, fantastic guitarist, and so was the <laughs> then, so was the then um, uh, foreign minister, uh, Japanese foreign minister, Hayashi. Do you think you could see yourself doing that with the Chinese? <laughs> uh, not, just, not just yet. Look, uh, one of the points I made in, in my Mansion House speech was that I, 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 I do this job to to try and influence 
uh, other governments. But they don't open up, do they? Chinese diplomats are famously, famously very disciplined. I mean, I I hear what you're saying about the body language that they might be letting off, but they're famously disciplined for staying on message. They don't tend to listen really that much. They don't certainly don't personally have any lunches or engagements and that kind of stuff. (laughs) That makes your job as a diplomat very hard to build that rapport, doesn't it? Yeah, but everyone's human. And it's and and look, one of the things that I would say, and I'm very very conscious that this is on a whole upper level of arrogance. What I'm about to say, <laughs> but I do I do always caution people, kind of buying into the kind of narrative about how China is and how Chinese officials, you know, because because the Chinese government would like nothing more for the whole world to basically say, oh, Chinese diplomats are famously, mm. famously disciplined and give nothing away and that kind of stuff. But you know what? You know, if, if you've... I use the poker face thing. If you've never played a hand of poker, um, everybody looks poker-faced. But mm. good poker players can spot the really subtle... And, and, and I have some fantastic poker players on my payroll... I have people <laughs> I have people who have engaged with China for decades. I have um, uh, uh, you know, people in our people in our various uh, posts in China who are on their second, third, fourth tour as diplomats in China speak Chinese like native uh, speakers um, and track longitudinally. Mm-hmm. You know changes. those subtle, subtle changes because nobody has a perfect poker face, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's why having a diplomatic network matters. That's why having uh, you know, experts in the language, culture, and 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 society in China matters because because you know. That's that's how you tell the difference. If all you do is 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 read the official statement of the meeting, it looks repetitive. Um, but as I say, when you're in the room, and I've noticed it, the the, the first conversation I had with Wang Yi uh, in the margins of the UN General Assembly in uh, uh, what September of last year. Mm-hmm. If you look at the readout of the conversation, my words to him, his words to me, and then the readout of the conversation that we had nearly a year later, you would look at that and go. What was the point? Nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's all the little subtle differences. It's with how much passion he put forward the Chinese position on various things compared with how much time he spent discussing those uh, issues versus other issues. Can you give us one example of what do you think has changed between September of last year and your conversation with well, the Well, the Chinese, the Chinese economic slowdown, um, the public failure of uh, zero COVID policy. You think they're more humble? The Chinese, well, I mean, they'd never say that, but the, I mean, the, the Chinese people's reaction, when basically the Chinese people turned around to their government and said, no, we've had enough. You must change your position. And then the Chinese government changed its position. Um, youth unemployment, uh, I think they stopped publishing the figures at 21%. Mm-hmm. Our estimates is that it's comfortably over 25%. Um, uh, there are probably, and I might trip myself up on the numbers here, there are probably more newly built vacant properties in China than the total number of properties in the UK. I think it's an internal number of people in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there are more newly built vacant properties than the population of the UK. Like that focuses the mind. And when a British foreign secretary basically says, "You need to do things differently, otherwise you will see international trade subtly, gently trending away from you," just at a point where to maintain the growth projections that China needs to fund its contract with its own society, it needs nearly double-digit annual growth. And it ain't going to get it unless it does something differently. Now, the government's current approach, I think it can be summed up as robust pragmatism. Is that fair to say? I mean, it's no longer the golden era. So can I ask you, you know, when it comes to things like investment, Chinese investment, which is one of the purposes of your visit, in what areas are we robust on? What are the red lines for Chinese investment into the UK or trade with the UK? Because it, to your critics, it doesn't, doesn't sound like there's much that's that different. So the, 
the trip was not about trade. I know there's some kind of post-top. I mean, it's one of these things where, um, and again, I think, I think there needs to be a, a bit of a re-education. I'll be careful to use the word re-education. Um, I, think that, I think there needs to be a bit of a reminder of what diplomacy is about. It's not always immediately transactional. And I kept saying to people, they said, oh, you're going over to China to, to talk about trade. I'm like, no, 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 I'm going over to China to talk about a whole load of stuff. Um, and like, oh, so w what are you hoping to achieve? You can, can I come in back general, with trade? In general, what are the trade investment red lines? So, so the trip was not necessarily about trade investment, but uh, I mean, we, we, we've set this out. And again, I you know, remind, um, remind my uh, hosts when I was in Beijing of this, I set this out pretty explicitly in the Mansion House speech that I gave around Easter, which is, of course, we will trade with China. Of course, we will have investment from China. But we do so with our eyes wide open. And we, like many other countries around the world, are now putting a greater priority on our security and protections against inappropriate Chinese either you know, diplomatic or industrial behavior. We are prioritizing that above the uh, commercial. Um, so where security considerations and commercial considerations clash, security considerations always win. Um, and, and, and so the exact red lines will be dependent on the exact circumstance, but as a, as, a, as, a, as a policy, a conscious policy decision now, we are prioritizing security. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's fair to say that your Mansion House speech and the government's approach to China is quite different to the last Conservative government's approach to China under Liz Trust just a year ago. Did you change your view on China during that time? Because you were one of Liz Truss's key backers, or did you always disagree with her on China? So look, e even uh, you know, uh, close friends, political allies, don't agree on absolutely everything. Now but she, she was, put you in charge as foreign secretary. She, you, you guys must have been relatively yeah, and, and Yeah, she put me in charge as foreign secretary when, when she became you know, prime minister. And, uh, of course, the foreign secretary uh, has an input on foreign policy, the primary input on foreign policy, but all big ticket policy uh, is really decided cross government, and the ultimate arbiter is going to be the uh, the prime minister. Um, and um, and look, I would have I would have made the case that um, being uh, being vocal in our criticism of China or or you know, describing China in a certain way, if that's the decision that she wanted to take as Prime Minister, I respect that, but that we also had to make sure that we were taking practical measures. And so you know, sometimes when people say, oh, our position has softened on China, and I say, well, give me an example, mm -hmm. because actually we have toughened uh, our stance, as I say, we have toughened our stance on um, uh, investment from China. We have toughened our protections of freedom of speech and freedom of liberty uh, on uh, university campuses, uh, for example. We have, we, have, we have taken practical measures to protect ourselves uh, against you know, all forms of foreign interference. So the practical measures, we have toughened up. Mm -hmm. And if people assume that, that, that being less confrontational publicly is a softening of position, they are, they, are, they are missing the areas where they should focus on. I'll give you one example where it does seem like there has been a softening from both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss's pledges, which is to shut down Confucius Institutes in the UK. Now, there are 30 of these. And earlier this year, the government says that it wasn't going to do that anymore. So that is, that is based on our, um, on our assessment of, of, of risk. Uh, we, of course, take as a freedom of speech and people's individual freedoms. I mean, we had an assessment, for example, of the so-called Chinese uh, police stations, both here in Manchester, in London, and elsewhere. Uh, we have made it very, very clear to the Chinese government what we regard to be the boundaries of acceptable behavior of their, you know, their, their actions within uh, the UK. And all, all, all governments have manifestations in other in other countries whether it be embassies whether it be for us you know uh, the British Council or whatever um, and actually protecting ourselves uh, can sometimes mean shutting things down absolutely but you can also protect yourselves without having to shut things down and and for example uh, we need to look at the relative merits of losing for uh, for example the ability of the British Council to work in China or indeed other countries. The British Council, since its formation, has not just 
um, distributed British language learning, you know, embedded in that are British cultural norms and British philosophy and British thinking as well as the British language, the English language. Um, and you know, being careful about losing that influence overseas is is really really key, and that that's why it's nuanced. And and you know, sometimes you know, you, you you make an assessment about the relative merits of doing something, and sometimes you know the the easy headline isn't always the right headline. Mm. Now, in a recent interview, you said that your military background has trained you to make decisions as far ahead as possible. That's that's a direct quote from you. Um, in that case, I wondered. What's your thinking uh, of what to do if early one morning you're woken up with a phone call, Foreign Secretary, China has invaded Taiwan? So look, if, 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 I, get that, if I get that phone call, um, of course, you know, we, we do thinking about this. You will understand that what I'm not going to do on your podcast as much as I uh, respect you and I would, love to, uh, I would love to make sure that you get good listener figures for this particular episode. I am not, not going to start talking through the contingency planning that we have for a whole range of uh, eventualities. But I would have regarded that as a massive failure of, of foreign policy because, and again, I have said this multiple times and directly to the to the Chinese government um, disruption through uh, dis- disruption across the Taiwan Strait is everybody's business mm-hmm. um, and inevitably the Chinese government will say well no this is an entirely domestic matter you you know we don't mess around in your uh, domestic decision making mm-hmm. um, but um, uh, this is an entirely domestic matter it's nothing to do with you and I say no no this is not an entirely domestic matter. Huge international trade volumes go through that uh, body uh, of water. The disruption uh, to, uh, to, the, to, to, to the movement of, of key componentry, uh, key bits of the componentry of modern life go through that stretch of water. It would be a catastrophically bad thing mm. for the global economy, comma, and it would be a catastrophically bad thing for the Chinese economy. Uh, it would cr- it would collapse the Chinese economy. As we're now seeing, the Chinese economy is not all powerful. Their economic do- dominance, as I said in my Mansion House speech in uh, Easter, is not inevitable. Uh, and conflict across the Taiwan Strait would, I, I, I think, collapse the Chinese economy and bring a number of other economies down with it. Um, and so, it is not in China's interest. Uh, for that to happen. And this is about diplomacy. Diplomacy and foreign affairs is not just about reacting to events, it's about steering events. We're not just blown around by the winds of circumstance, we, we make the weather. Um, and preventing that outcome from happening <coughs> is an absolute core plank of uh, UK's foreign policy uh, in the Pacific uh, and the Indo-Pacific region. And the final question for me, which is that Foreign Secretary, you've got a great Instagram game. I really enjoy it. <laughs> uh, your colleague Grant Shapps is very prolific on TikTok. Do you think you'll go on TikTok anytime soon? No. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone have any audience questions? <laughs> um, yeah, I think we only take two. Um, so is there a microphone coming from the back there? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've got Latika there, um, one, two, three, four, and then, um, yeah, we've got Hillary, sorry, the woman in white here. So. Thanks so much, um, Secretary of State Latika Burke from the Sydney Morning Herald. Great to see you. Um, one of the fashionable words that's uh, become, I guess, the, the word is, uh, the buzzword now is de-risking. Yeah. Is this an approach that the UK is following? And if so, what specific sectors do we see de-risking taking place? Great, and can we just move the microphone to... Opposite, and then we can, we can yeah. deal with both, and then we'll let you go. Thank you, Cindy. So, I just wanted to see what's the realistic chance to reassume the Sino UK um, economic financial dialogue, asking as the UK pension industry has a lot of investments and exposure to Chinese market. You've mentioned that you know the economy is not doing great, so do we demand a level of dialogue and transparency from the Chinese market? Uh, look, uh, thank you on, on both questions. Yeah, I um. I think it was Ursula von der Leyen who who coined the phrase or coined the word de-risking, um, and uh, and so she was speaking in her capacity pan EU member states. But I do think in various ways, 
pretty much all countries are doing some form of, of de-risking. Now, the exact definition, I mean, she used it, and we've uh, and we've now, uh, we now kind of tend to use it as an umbrella term for a whole load of things about domestic protection, some of which I've already discussed. Some of it's about diversification of supply chains. Some of it is about making sure that we don't allow uh, kind of pinch points. And de-risking doesn't just have to happen in a bilateral relationship. So, for example, and I've had this conversation with African leaders, at the moment, critical minerals are, are buried in the ground in many, many, many parts of the world. But the processing of those critical minerals is disproportionately happening in, in China, which potentially gives China, um, well, creates a pinch point, and pinch points can turn into strangleholds. So I think it's in everybody's interest to actually diversify, not, not necessarily all just where we buy uh, componentry from, but where that processing happens. And I, and I, said, when I, was, uh, I said this to a number of African leaders. You know, Africa has seen its raw commodities exported, whether it's cocoa, whether it's coffee, you know, a whole load of things exported raw, processed and value-added outside the continent, and then they've had to buy it back in at a premium, which has is, which is had a disastrous long-term effect on African economies. And I said, look, you've, you've had it with cocoa, you've had it with coffee, don't do it with lithium, don't do it with copper, do more processing domestically. Now, there is a massive chunk of self-interest in that because it prevents that pinch point stranglehold risk. But it also helps us stop the boats. Because guess what? If we can lift those African economies, poor Africans are going to be less desirous to try and cross the Atlantic, uh, sorry, across uh, the Mediterranean uh, and cross the Channel and come to the UK. So it's a kind of general win-win. So we're all doing it in various forms. And I think it's probably going to be a trend that's uh, is going to continue for the foreseeable future. With regard to uh, the dialogue, um, as I say, we do need to, we do need to uh, have regular dialogue uh, with, uh, uh, with China. A lot of UK investment in China, uh, whether it's you know, investment, traditional investment or, 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 or UK companies having an active economic presence uh, in, in China, and it, and it matters that we get that right. Uh, I think regular dialogue helps. How formalised we make that, we will we will have to we'll have to see. That's one of the things that are up for debate. I've said uh, it is in again it's in China's interest to get into the habit of being more transparent on some of its economic stuff, on some of its uh, uh, military decision making. You know, transparency prevents. No, that's not true. Transparency reduces the risks of miscalculations and errors, whether that be in the commercial sphere, diplomatic sphere, or military sphere. So it's in China's interest to be more open. It is not instinctively where they are. But again, you change behavior by understanding uh, the motivations of your counterparty. And so you know, China recognizes it needs to do something different economically. It can't continue doing what it's doing because otherwise it will continue seeing slide. That is an opportunity for influence, and I think it's one that we should take. Foreign Secretary, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers, everyone. Sophia and Sam, I thought, first of all, I could get you guys to reflect on the themes of that discussion. You know, what, what did you think of what James Cleverly had to say? Sophia, maybe you can start. You know, I mean, I think the Foreign Secretary is obviously treading a similar line to the Mansion House speech, which um, was extraordinary in, in its numerous audiences. And I think we're in quite an unusual situation now with foreign policy, where we have this foreign policy campaigning infrastructure in Parliament, um, particularly on the issue of China, uh, which is not something that we historically have before. So it means that the Foreign Secretary is not just having to speak to the Chinese regime, mm. our partners and allies, the British people, British business, but he's also having to speak to Westminster and the different dynamics going on there. Um, and there's obviously an extremely vociferous uh, sort of cell <laughs> within Westminster um, who, who have very strong views about China. Um, so the sort of diplomacy at home is as important as the diplomacy abroad on this issue. Um, 
I think certainly... Uh, the or even inside the Conservative Party alone. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, we, we don't hear a huge amount from Labour on China. We're still waiting to see more of the bones on what they're uh, going to be putting forward. But um, certainly within the Conservative Party, it, there has been a um, ferocious debate. I think it's interesting to hear the Foreign Secretary, and I, and I agree with him, make that point that where a lot of the shifts, the perceived shifts have been and that softening is really around the public rhetoric. Mm. Um, and I think there is a credible argument to say that if you are softening some of that rhetoric, which, by the way, is something that we're seeing, you know, in Canberra, in D.C., uh, you know, at, at, amongst many of our partners and allies, um, that actually also allows you to have some kind of greater room for that really, really fundamental security project, which is what we need to do, because everything is about swinging that pendulum and making sure that we have the right balance from which we can actually engage. We want to be engaging from a confident position with all those security measures in place, but we won't be able to engage if we're just sort of, you know, it, it, if, if we've got things too heavily stacked on one side rather than the other. So, and, and we hear a bit of that in what he's saying about Confucius Institutes, mm. you know, the, the cost assessment there is to say that the value of the British Council being able to operate is more significant to us and our interests, and, and I should say our allied interests as well, that's not mm. just about the UK, um, than closing down these Confucius Institutes, which have been judged to be relatively, um, you know, not particularly efficacious. So, um, and I think that is a really interesting balance that they're having to strike there. I mean, I, I agree with him that you don't want to be fighting the battle in the public rhetoric. You want to be fighting the battle behind the scenes. Um, but, of course, because of how sensitive the security dimensions of our relationship with China are, it's often very opaque and it's hard to get officials to speak publicly about all those measures that have been put in place behind the scenes. So I do sort of understand why there is that concern and consternation within Westminster um, because there isn't necessarily visibility of everything mm. the government is doing. I thought it was really interesting what he was saying about the body language of the Chinese, that they're always observing that, you know, as someone who has a, uh, wanted to be a diplomat once in my life at uh, one time, um, you know, that kind of, int of colour was really interesting. Sam, what did you make of it? Well, first of all, let me say that I was twice rejected from the foreign office. <laughs> I share shattered dreams too. I think the view that I have of it is it, it's good to see the foreign secretary talk about these things and add that level of complexity to it. You know, you talk about the body language stuff. I, I cover how the UK talks about China every single week. I've done for three years now. If an MP or a peer has used the word China in Parliament, I have read that word. It's a sad life that I live. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that the conversation there is on a level that is not often expressed in Westminster. So there's a bit of a vacuum around how do we deal with China and, and Westminster that's filled by people who have a very strong opinion, which is absolutely fundamental to democracy. But often... Um, it's just one set of opinions one reads in the public domain, in the political domain. It, it actually surprised me that he was so frank about what he was looking to achieve from those one-on-one -on -one meetings with mm. various people. And I, I wish that there was a, a more of a culture of explaining that, as it were. You know, what's the purpose of what we're doing? I think one of the things the government is particularly poor at is communicating what it's actually trying to achieve. And you know, all, the foreign secretary is all fine to report back to his Mansion House speech, but the idea of protect, align, engage... I, I could have made that up on the spot. It's not going to be something that people understand straight away. So we need more confident messaging about what we're actually trying to achieve here. That would be my hot take. And Sophia, how do you see the Conservative parties, you know, we just alluded to it here, um, own internal conflict on China, something that I think occasionally comes to the fore, but especially over the spy story in the last uh, month or so? You know, do, do, where does that go from here? Is that productive in a China discussion? I think there is a really um, important conversation to be had around parliamentary education and education more generally in Westminster. I, I was a little bit disappointed by the response about that Chinese capability uplift fund. I mean, to have that as a competitive tender across <laughs> government just seems insane to me. Um, and I'm also not clear that you know, there are so many different aspects of our relationship with China that need to come into view. I mean, we've described China as a systemic challenge, mm. but we've actually not implemented a whole of government system level. Yeah, what does it actually mean? Shift. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, 
senior officials working in DEFRA, for example, need to have China capabilities because, you know, we need to be understanding our Chinese investors seeking to buy up productive agricultural land. You know, what? there's so many different things outside of the national security wheelhouse in traditional sense that need to come into view. Um, and I do think as well that just in general, the sort of parliamentary education around China is extremely poor. Um, and there does seem to need to be some kind of process around this. We've lived with the threat of Russia from the sort of Cold War era. Institutionally, we're so comfortable at responding to that and kind of moving the system into gear. Um, and of course, we saw that in the situation with the invasion of Ukraine and that pre-intelligence that we received um, in anticipation of that, and the system was able to mobilize in response. I still feel that we are really in a reactive phase with China. Mm. We are so much better than where we were. But for example, I think, I think a lot of this is about conceptual shifts. We have this conversation about, you know, does China care what Britain thinks or does or, you know, and all this very British tradition of talking ourselves down about, you know, <laughs> of course, we're just a sort of little minnow and why we're trying to be interested in us. We actually have some really distinct value offer to China, um, not least of all our position between the two major Western blocs that China is going to be seeking to divide. That's one of its core objectives over the next decade is to, to drive a wedge between the EU and the United States and create kind of different spheres of influence there. The UK is uniquely placed within that construction. So even just on that alone. But we do have other sort of value adds, whether that's kind of in diplomacy. I mean, China looks to the UK for... Um, climate leadership, sort of policy incubation around this. We are often holding the pen in the international diplomatic community. All of these things have value to China. And we don't seem to be very um, adept at assessing that value mm -hmm. and understanding that we actually will increase and develop and enhance our strategic influence by investing in those areas that are also of value to China, which is why when we have you know, questions about rolling back net zero and, and so on, this is not just a domestic conversation. This is actually about our international influence and not just with our partners, but also our strategic rivals too. Mm. Now, Sam, in your work looking at what politicians are saying about China, do you feel like, you know, Sophia used the word reactionary, uh, reactive there. Mm. Um, it does sometimes feel like the government is being, being reactive to concerns that backbenchers bring on China. You know, for example, cases like the British citizen Jimmy Lai, who owned mm -hmm. um, a paper in Hong Kong, really had to see grassroots campaigning for the government to even mention him after the national security law uh, has come into place. You know, James Cleverly sounded very good here, you know, all very smooth. But do you actually think that the government itself has that extensive view of our relationship with China? Sometimes it feels like they're being dragged into positions. I think that's, an, yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I think one of the, the biggest weaknesses we have in our overall approach to China right now is a government that is constantly or appears to be dragged into acting on various things. I mean, we didn't raise it there cleverly, but one of the things that we could have touched on was the Manchester Consul General sure. incident where that Hong Konger was beaten. You know, eventually the diplomats left, but it wasn't a case of get out of the country. It was more of like a back, back passage uh, sort of diplomacy thing there. But I think, you know, it's, it's a wider issue, which is that controversially, given uh, I'm on a panel with a, a journalist, I do think there is an issue we have in the ecosystem around understanding China, wherein journalists approach MPs for an on or off the record comment on a significant security issue or issue that the MP doesn't know anything about. So let, let me give you an example, right? Electric vehicles, we're going to have to have a conversation around where the UK's industrial strategy is on that, what the actual risks are, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are. I do not need to read what an MP thinks about that, fundamentally. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. I need to read what an EV expert or potentially a series of EV experts say about it. And then I can read their insight and compare that to where the government is moving. And at that point, I can see an MP being like, brilliant, I can see the concerns here. So that, that ties back into your point. And there are exceptions to that rule. There are some MPs who are fantastic at raising things that the government is still incredibly weak on. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Scan through the parliamentary records of someone like Catherine West, Labour's shadow minister for Asia, and you'll see repeated references to BGI Group, which is a huge Chinese genomics firm. Scan through Alicia Kern stuff, you'll see references to Lodging, which is a Chinese uh, system people use in ports. There are these cases that are brought forward, and the government is really bad at answering, but I do think we need to see more expert comment uh, across, the, across the arena, as it were. Mm. And just, Sam, just on that, you know, what, what, Sophia raised the question of what is Labour's position on China? <coughs> well, what is Labour's position on China? 
Yeah, so I have very little to add beyond what Sophia outlined there. <laughs> All I would say, the two things that I am speaking to people about when it comes to Labour's position on China, the two things that are stated that are different, the first is that the Labour Party's official position as of this moment is that a genocide is taking place in Xinjiang, right? So let's say we sped race through an election and by this time next month, Labour are in power. Labour have an obligation to act if their official view is that a genocide is taking place. They have signed up, we have signed up as a country to the different conventions, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the one thing. That's a very hefty thing. And the other thing is that Labour have discussed this idea of a UK-China audit. We're going to look at the bilateral, we're going to work out where our risk threshold is, et cetera, et cetera. That's the slogan. What lurks beneath that is uh, yet to be seen, but worth keeping an eye on, I think. Mm. And Sophia, rather predictably, he refused to answer my question about Taiwan and what the UK would do. But what do you think that the UK, what, what do you think would be in British interest to do if China were to invade Taiwan? Um, <laughs> well, there's so many um, dimensions to this. And I, I think also we focus very much on the kind of military um, mm. scenarios there, but there are also a lot of kind of economic statecraft scenarios that need to be mapped as well. And in, in, in some ways, they may actually be more um, likely to occur. Mm. Um, look, there was obviously extensive wargaming um, that went on in Whitehall in the same way it went on in Canberra in D.C. Uh, later, late last year and, and early this year. Um, it is something that there is a constant um, update of scenario planning within HMG. Um, the U.K. has determined that there is a significant British interest in such a scenario. Um, but, of course... I think something that has sort of dawned on the government um, and, and many of our allies is that we are living in a very dynamic geopolitical environment that could theoret theoretically give rise to multiple spheres of conflict simultaneously. Um, and of course, in such a scenario, uh, the UK would have to take decisions about its resources uh, alongside our closest allies about whether or not we are needed shoring up the Euro-Atlantic security theatre as well as the Indo-Pacific security theatre. So I think for all these reasons, um, the shift of emphasis has moved to deterrence, mm. which is where you have projects like AUKUS and so on, which are, which are meant to sort of stave off um, these kind of eventualities uh, occurring in, in, in the first place. Um, but I do think that uh, the UK's uh, consciousness, its sort of awareness, heightened awareness of what's going on in the Indo-Pacific and the, the has has dramatically increased, and and the sense that we have a direct stake in that, not that that is a higher interest, but that there is a national interest in that, that has been one of the biggest shifts that's taken because place. Of AUKUS. I, AUKUS is is a response to that, mm -hmm. um, but it, the, the development of that thinking and it has been something that it has been quite a slow process, but I'd say it's accelerated quite significantly in the past two years. Mm. Now, I'd like to move on to some audience questions. So could you um, ra raise your hands? If, <laughs> um, if it, does anyone have any questions, just kick us off. Um, yeah. Uh, James oh, sorry, could you just wait for the microphone? Sorry. <laughs> James, said, James said that uh, you wouldn't summarize, try and summarize France in one word. But I think possibly you've got a candidate for China, which is nationalism, which is very extreme, it seems, and I'd be interested in anybody's views on, on that, that we have a sufficient appreciation of that, Parliament have a sufficient appreciation of that, and what it leads to, because we know that imperialism in Russia leads to Ukraine. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah, should we get to do that question first? And then, um... I think that's a really great question. Um, I think it ties into the fact that we have a, a serious lack of China capability stuff here. I don't, I can name honestly on 10 fingers how many people we have in the public political domain talking about China with a proper level of expertise. And what we've seen is that if you don't have the expertise, you can't assess the threat, the challenge or the opportunity properly. Whether we understand China's nationalism in the media, which often informs a political debate, I would say probably not yet, although Chinese whispers are doing a great job of getting us there good plug. But I, I do think it's a really critical thing and it, it really worries me. I don't have any encouraging words to give you on that apart from people I speak to are aware that, that is an issue. 
I think you're right. The nationalism does define modern China in the sense that communism no longer defines modern China. Um, and it's interesting what manifestation that has on foreign policy, because as you say, imperialism has led to the Ukraine war. Nationalism, of course, could lead to an invasion of Taiwan. But I do think there's a real question of if Xi Jinping is about making China great again, to what extent does invading Taiwan actually make China great again? You know, I I know in democratic countries, we often talk about a dead dead cat strategy, distraction strategy from economic problems at home. But actually, that particular distraction would make the problems at home so much worse. Almost all of China's maritime trade goes goes past Taiwan or uh, American military bases in Okinawa in Japan. So, you know, Sophia, as you said, it's these economic statecraft methods that would really screw up China if the West decided to basically besiege China's seas uh, as a response, response for to Taiwan. And I think Beijing knows that. So, yes, agreed, nationalism absolutely defines modern China, but I'm not sure it does necessitate an invasion of Taiwan myself. I don't know, Sophia, if you wanted to add anything to that. Well, just, I, I think, I... I agree with the foreign secretary that using one word, I mean, even nationalism, yes, it's an appropriate uh, descriptor, but it's not sufficient because it does not necessarily indicate whether or not that will be accompanied by or would uh, inevitably lead to a a form of imperialism that would, you know, have profound geopolitical implications. I mean, I think, you know, it's also the case that there will be nationalist forces affecting a very large number of countries, uh, including many of our allies, over, over, over the coming decades. So um, I'm not sure that it's a sufficient uh, term to encapsulate the risk that we're facing here or, or the, the nature of it. But yes, I, I agree it is, is a huge problem and profoundly um, disturbing. We had a question over here as well. When we talk about relations with China, it seems to be focused on economy they're going to be trading or not. One thing I think we forget to mention is the Chinese people or Taiwanese people. Do they want war? Ordinary Chinese people or Taiwanese people just want to get on with their lives, have the children to go to better schools, better jobs. No one wants war. And I was very inter- I wanted to ask the Foreign Secretary the question in terms of what would be government policy to prevent or help prevent war between these two places. Mm-hmm. Um, Would Chinese people have a role to play? You know, the the uh, demonstration to end the uh, zero COVID swiftly within weekend shows that although China may be uh, autocracy, but Chinese people do have a voice. They could influence. Do we uh, do, do we have a policy to engage with ordinary people there? That's really interesting. Um, well, um, the UK has not traditionally been extremely effective at engaging with diaspora communities in the UK or understanding their the foreign policy implications for diaspora communities. Um, there are several other countries that do it a lot better than the UK does, frankly. Um, I, it's sort of interesting to me that um, in, in domestic terms, the, the UK has sort of now is setting up all these different units in, in the Home Office that's looking at state threats. So these are sort of, um, this is not the foreign policy people. This is, these are the people who are sort of looking after the home front. So this is a domestic story. And state threats from countries like Iran and China and so on coming from the outside in. And that can involve transnational repression, interference in our democracy, parliament, all of these different areas. Um, but that hasn't really been matched by investments in more positive and constructive engagement with diaspora communities and understanding that that has to be a piece of the puzzle when we are talking about a much more dynamic geopolitical environment. So I think we still have a huge way to go on that and we have to be aware. I mean, I, th- I think obviously the situation with the BNOs and Hong Kong has sort of drawn some attention to that. But again, we're seeing that in sort of reactive kind of enforcement terms rather than thinking about what a a proactive and positive engagement story looks like. And I think that also comes into the question about higher education and universities. Um, You know, we, we need to 
have some space of allowing a positive cultural influence and exchange to be taking place um, where, you know, Western values, culture and society um, can, can have positive influence in that respect. And I am concerned that while I think we do need to be a bit cynical and skeptical about um, our capacity to directly influence in those terms, uh, particularly back in the uh, Chinese domestic environment, um, we shouldn't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater on that because there is some work there that does move the dial in, in small ways. And when we're looking at um, trying to reduce risks from really catastrophic scenarios, uh, even those tiny little movings of the needle are, are incredibly important. So um, I, I don't actually know what the government's strategy is in terms of trying to engage directly with the Chinese people. It seems um, quite... Uh, opaque to, to me, and I'm not sure it's um, particularly sophisticated, but it's something that I think needs to be in the mix. And if you look back to, you know, the kinds of things we were doing in the Cold War, you know, this has always been a part of our statecraft. Um, perhaps we've become a bit more complacent about it. I'm personally sceptical. I mean, I, I know the Foreign Secretary said that the COVID, zero COVID ended because of the protests. I'm personally sceptical of that. I actually think that there were other factors at play where we could already see the Chinese state winding back zero COVID. So I don't actually know if we have a good example of popular protests in China leading to political change, as depressing as that is. Having said that, also from a very anecdotal um, survey of Chinese people that I, you know, I come in touch with and my family and friends, the notion that Taiwan is a part of China is a very uncontroversial thing to say in China. It's a really uncontroversial thing to say in China, and I think we have to realise that. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone thinks invasion is a good thing, and I, I wouldn't be able to say how many people think that there should be an invasion. Probably most people don't think that, but they do think that Taiwan belongs to China. Um, and so I don't know if you would ever get a popular uprising to say, no, don't do that. The only thing I can think of is if, let's say, Beijing makes that step, and it's a really drawn-out bloody uh, invasion in the way that the Ukraine war has been. There's lots of social media footage, and we know how digital the Chinese are. Um, a lot of social media footage of people who look like them you know, being killed by the People Liberation, People's Liberation Army. I think that could lead to some kind of popular notion, but I, I'm sceptical how much the UK could influence that. I do think, though, the UK in its language, you know, doesn't have to be pushing away Chinese people, you know, making very clear and very um, specific that you're talking about the government and the party, you're not talking about the people and the country and the history and the culture, that's very important to get public opinion on side, is, is my own view on that. Any other questions? Yeah, one at the back. Hello. Um, following on from that, um, with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, the UK government were quick to classify Russia as an enemy, for obvious reasons, being part of NATO. If... China did invade Taiwan. Morally, should the UK government treat China the same way it did with Russia? <laughs> I, I think it's been made pretty clear to the Chinese regime that the West will respond with some pretty robust sanctions, and uh, you know, and 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 also in defensive military terms. I mean, there's it, there are obviously uh, various elements of strategic ambiguity around um, the defense and military guarantees that will be given, but I, I think you don't have to be <laughs> a, a particularly skilled sleuth to read between the lines. Um, and, and it's important that the West makes that, um, that credible because, um, you know, certainly one of there's been a lot of soul-searching since Russia's invasion of Ukraine about the many opportunities that perhaps there could have been um, to have enacted a more effective deterrence or a more proactive military response, uh, certainly post-2014. So I think China has learned from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but uh, so have we. And um, I, think, I think it is these two security theatres are inextricably linked and it was something that I think perhaps wasn't on the horizon when Russia crossed that border um, in, in February 22, but um, certainly the, the 
Ukraine question and how it pertains to the Taiwan question. They are extremely different scenarios, but I think what would be absolutely consistent is the use of a highly coordinated, robust sanctions regime, which has uh, proven very effective in, in the Russia case. Um, and, and, and I don't think China would be under any illusions that that would be applied. Sam, what's more, given the parliamentary dynamic we've talked about, you know, presumably the government would have to take very strong steps in reaction to that, not least because of backbench pressure. Yeah, you would absolutely assume so. And, and I think to build on Sophia's answer, that it's a really interesting question. You can imagine our government asking governments around the world, because one of the things we saw with the, U- the invasion of Ukraine was people saying, you know, every democracy stands against this invasion. And unfortunately, every democracy didn't stand against the invasion. That's not how geopolitics works. It's never that black and white. It's never that simple. And this is where the Australians have absolutely smashed it with the Foreign Minister Penny Wong. You go along to these countries and you say, look, we're in the same neck of the, neck of the woods. What's your ideal outcome here? What do you want to see this develop like? And how can we help you achieve that? We're X-ranking power here, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of this stuff can get quite performative, which is fine. Politics is about performing. That's a good thing. But we need to be able to have these conversations. And as both uh, Cindy and Sophia touched on there, it, it needs to be as a group, as much of a group as we can get together. So it's a really great question. And I hope it's a question that's been asked in embassies around the world right now from the Brits and our close friends too. And just to round off with my personal thoughts on that question, which is that I think the operative difference is that Ukrainians look like Europeans and the Taiwanese don't. And Taiwan is much, much further from the UK than Ukraine is. So I can totally understand the very immediate and strong reaction that the West and the UK have given. I am interested to see whether that reaction will be similarly reflexive if a Taiwan invasion were to to happen. And we already know the kind of the pro-Russian, or at least the Russian sympathetic viewpoint on Ukraine already in, for example, in America, saying that we shouldn't be helping Ukraine. I can only imagine those voices will be louder if it comes to Taiwan. So I think really interesting question here. Um, And I don't know the answer to that. Hopefully we'll never come to it. (laughs) Everyone, thank you so much for joining this um, panel here today on Monday at the Fringe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers, wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.